straight up, this is one of my favorite episodes of the Mocha Live podcast we've recorded yet. It is madcap, it is inspired, and it's just really, really fun to record. What started as a kind of misunderstanding between Coburn and I about what we actually thought this podcast was going to be about turned into a conversation about all sorts of things, from the blockchain's ability to capture energy, about macro and micro cultures, about what kind of cultural product America exports, metacultures, and I mean, we touch on magic and mysticism and museums too. Uh, there's a lot of art and insight in this one, so you're going to want to stick around for the whole thing. Our guest for this week is the surrealist painter and self-professed magician in the mystical sense, that is not in the Siegfried and Roy sense, uh, Andre Siegelboim whose works are some of the most eye-popping and recognizable in all of crypto art and what a mind as well. So please enjoy this conversation between Colborn and Andres and I, and make sure to subscribe to this podcast as well. Hell, even give it a five-star rating if you like on whatever platform you prefer to listen on. And now the Mocha Live podcast. Good evening, everybody. It is 5 o'clock p.m. EST here in uh, sweltering Brooklyn, New York. My name is Max Cohen. I'm the lead writer for the Museum of Crypto Art, and this is the Mocha Live podcast. Uh, joining me as he does every week, founder of the Museum of Crypto Art, Colborn Bell. Hi, Colborn. Hello, Max. And a very special guest this week, all the way from Miami, Florida, Andres Siegelboim, who just taught me how to pronounce his name. And we are talking art today. We are not talking about the market, at least not directly. Uh, we wanted to sit down and talk about crypto art on like an actual art making artistic level and not just as beholden to the financial whims of the larger cryptocurrency market. So art, why do we do it? What do we feel when we do it? What does it grant us? Um, Colborn, this was kind of your topic when you at least like broach it to me, talking about energy and kind of the spirituality. I'm, I will just, I know that you always give me that reaction when I say that like you came the, the concept. But what was your like thought process? I gotta say, as you were just, just just describing this to me, I'm like, this is not the conversation that I signed up for. Bro, but... you, I make the notes every week. You're supposed to look at the notes. Okay, what, I looked oh, at man. the notes. I don't know. I just had this. I, I I had this nice reaction to this this quote that like blockchain is not about money. It's about like the energy transference and and reconnecting with the human value, right? So it's about like disambiguating. If we know U.S. dollar, like what are the values associated with U.S. dollars? For me, it's like this long legacy of of war and colonialism and global policing and. It's like, how do we begin to attract and put new values into this money? So so different than what I was saying. <laughs> a little bit. A lot of it is art, of course, right? It's like the transmutation of the ethereal into the object itself. And what does that object come to like stand for and represent? So how is that just abstracted one layer beyond into the token and kind of the movement was, was where I was hoping to kick things off, I guess. So... I just really quick, the first thing that came to my mind when you said that was a piece in the Genesis collection by uh, Carlos Marcial, um, the memorial, which is yeah. this, the gun. It's like a, some kind of a pistol wrapped in uh, fiat currency, and it's a layered async art, artwork. And each of the layers is a different skin of a different global currency. And when I wrote about that piece, it was interesting because it wasn't the currencies you'd expect. 
the ones associated with like colonialism and imperialism. I think there was a Venezuelan fiat currency. There was an African fiat currency. So there was currency from both like colonialist and imperialist countries and also ones that may have been colonized and imperialized. Um, So perhaps it's something about, I don't know, there's like the dollar of it all, but then there's also like the fiat of it all. It's just government currency, right? What does it mean to have government currency? And what does it mean to have people's currency? And what does it mean to have like a contemporary art market? And what does it mean to have like this pseudo emerging new idea of something? Andres, what do you think it means? Oh man, I mean, fuck. I've been, uh, (laughs) I I love talking about this shit because we predicted it since the seventies and we predicted it from the occult side of things. Um, We, there's a book by, I think it's Robert Anton Wilson called Illuminatus, which the first one's fucking rock solid. It's all about secret societies, whether they exist or they don't, sleeper cells, weird shit, the eminentization of the eschaton, which is another weird Christian word for creating the apocalypse and making it happen. And one of the subplots of this, of this book and one of the cultural parts of this book is that you fall around these cultural pirates and they don't run on fiat currency at all. They run strictly on a barter system that uses coins. They use barley coin and shit. And I, I remember reading it going, oh, that's pretty, that's cool. It's kind of cute. And then I see it happen in real life at like three or four years after reading the book. And I go, holy shit. But um, yeah, we, it's, it's, uh, you're welcome. We put that in motion for you. You know, you can give me all of the, uh, all of the fiat now. In exchange for <laughs> how does blockchain address that? Because there really is no centralized authority, authority dictating what it is, right? Mm-hmm. The rules were set in stone long ago, so it's very much a human system. Bitcoin could be worth zero, right? The only reason it's worth something is because people came, they used it, and they said it was worth money, right? So think of all of the ways over time that the idea of money has changed the way it's moved, you know, off of a gold standard or all of the ways that it is pegged to some sort of value, right? And all of it is just what is facilitating commerce, like, the most, right? The, the only thing we generally ask of, you know, the thing that we use is, is that it has a high velocity, right? That it's easily transactable, that it's... And, and that is kind of, like, what the purpose is, is to be able to take this this nothing thing or this fungible thing in a dollar and be able to exchange it for something that we need. So when you say like energy capture, as you did before, are you saying like literally allowing as many people as possible to partake in the valuation of a thing or in the experience of the thing as possible? Like, are you alluding more to like the accessibility side of blockchain as opposed to say like the American currency, which is sequestered within American politics, American economics. So when I kind of, when I kind of think of like U S dollar hegemony and what the dollar captures, well, the dollar is literally capturing oil. Right. It's capturing all of this. And this is how people like and natural move. gas. Is, sure. And natural gas. But it's mostly like oil. Right. I think 70, 80 percent of futures trades is denominated in oil. This is how nations move. This is the like number one input for all of these things. Um, and then when you think about like Bitcoin, well, Bitcoin is literally capturing generally electricity. It's, it's mining in a different sense, you know, so then people you know, they, they capture it, they mine it, it becomes more scarce over time as, as it happens and more people are kind of drawn to it because of the price, 
right? But you know, it's it's interesting when like from a distance we are able to this is all where it gets a bit woo-woo, like transmit and put ideology onto these symbols and these things that are inherently digital. Yes, heard. And that's interesting. And I think that this also relates back to artistry because I think that the nature of what you're saying, or at least how it sounds to me, is that, again, there is no, it's not just that there's no central authority, it's that there's no central value system to apply it to, which is essentially what like a government is. It's a centralized value system. Um, but I want to, I, I think that there's a conversation here about the art because I think that like the culture of crypto art is going to reflect the culture of cryptocurrency, obviously. Um, but down the road with this kind of energy capture, like I wonder, I, I've talked a lot about this, but like this kind of a geographic, a political, a cultural, like no man's land in which all this kind of cryptocurrency world exists that like kind of must exist in like a global public forum like Twitter. Um, Andres, I'm curious. I have a couple questions off of this, but like, is there a sect of your collector base that is like identifiably from a certain region or culture, or do you find that you are being kind of pulled all over the world in terms of what you create, in terms of the inspirations for what you create? It's weird because I find that it's, there is no monoculture, right? We're on a full many, many microcultures type beat right now. And, um, I find that my collectors are from everywhere at this point. I mean, I have some that are in Hong Kong. I have some that are in England. I have some that are in Scotland. I have some that are in America. I have some that are in Mexico. And now I'm just, that's a lot of ego there, but um, it's true. It's like, there's just, a, it's from everywhere. And it's really just people that resonate with, um, with my art. And, and I, I hope with, with me as a person, right? Like that's, that's also, that's also part of it. But, I, I do find that um, with me, what what is happening and maybe what I'm intending is that like is attracting like as much as humanly possible. I, I do uh, love um, being able to be friends with my collectors. Like, you know, it's it's really wonderful to have relationships with everybody. And, you know, it's that for me is, is the thing, but it has nothing. I don't think, uh, yeah, I think we're, we're past... Uh, <laughs> um, I think I think uh, all of this transcends these uh, national, international, cultural, financial boundaries 100% of the way. Yeah, I mean, it, it represents like an, um, a kind of the only way out is through kind of phenomenon. Because what's going to happen, again, if you have collectors from all over the world or you have these connections with people from all over the world, then instead of being drawn further and further in like the direction of like the influence of one place, say if you're making art in New York and you're only interacting with people who are based in New York and only selling work to people based in New York, you're going to be influenced consciously and subconsciously to make certain works that vibe with exactly what kind of oh, yes. okay. energy is yeah, being transmitted throughout New York at that time. Yeah. Look at fucking, uh, I'm sorry to, no, 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 if they're listening, um, look at, uh, for swearing, but, um, look at the way that New York was in the eighties and uh, into the 90s and 70s and so forth in terms of, you know, we think of these periods in time as being larger than life. And, and they very much were that every, every, every man and woman is a star in a galaxy, right? Like that's a thousand lives wrapped into one. But when you look at an actual art market population based on how it was with cities, you really are talking about 500 people uh, orbiting around one another at any given time. 
um, you know, Basquiat's New York was 500 odd artists living in the Lower East Side, plus the gallerists, curators, writers that lived alongside them, right? Your Andy Warhol stopping in at the bodega, right? It's uh, that kind of thing. And, and I think what we're seeing now as this trend is, and maybe that'll change based on the, the social media, and uh, which social media is being consumed by each person, but we're seeing a, a, um, a population of people interacting on one part of a public forum that are orbiting around each other at any given time, right? We're, we're all very much like, it's not even five degrees of separation, it's really one or two at any given moment in where we are in terms of crypto, uh, for, for what I'm imagining is right now, crypto Twitter, right? Cobra, what do you think about this idea of not having a monoculture, but having many microcultures, especially like within crypto art? I think that's right. And it's something I think is, you know, uh, ultimately aspirational. I feel like through the 90s and into the 2000s, there was this big idea that we could have like this ultra national. I, I just think COVID kind of like broke down everything that was ultimately that dream of this global interconnected everybody like being able to access and get to the same thing and you know i i've talked before i think about you know what has increasingly become like a global monoculture right like when you travel all the airbnbs are the same all the tech design looks the same like everything is trying to influence us in one direction but you know there's still like localization elements that are Generally, I think, like, being taken away, but they're finding themselves online in these, like, a-geographical, a, uh, asynchronous spaces. Totally. And I guess, like, that's not, obviously, that's not always, when you say, like, cultural, of course, it's not always, like, geographic. Like, Andres, I think that your work has, like, a real cultural aesthetic to it, although I'm not necessarily sure how to encapsulate that. I don't think it's necessarily, like, a geographic um, or even, I mean, I know you're into like occult stuff, so maybe it's like an occult kind of mythological culture. Could you describe that, by the way? Thing, thing, the thing about me is that um, I'm, I'm from Venezuela, which, you know, like mm. I, I was raised in Caracas until I was about four. But my uh, great-grandparents moved down from, I think, mixed, you know, Eastern Europe um, and, and settled down. So it's three generations deep of spice, Sorry, but I can't help it. Uh, <laughs> but like, so we, we have this, we have this mix of cultures. Yeah. In terms of you have diasporic Jews. So you have diasporic Jews that come from a desert culture with its own music that is influenced by the desert, its own uh, way of being influenced by the desert and also being influenced by constantly having to uproot and move around a touch and a ton uh, up and through Europe, different directions, and then eventually move to South America. And, um, yeah, and then from South America, right, on top of going from no desert nomadic culture to suddenly like mountains and jungle and uh, mountain basin, you know, like super hot heat culture, suddenly, you know, like I'm four, I'm diaspora again, and it's we moved to the United States. So from there, tons of stuff become readily available for me. So for me, interacting with these various cultures, you know, like I, I feel like I'm... Uh, homogenous heterogeneous mix of anything that I come into contact with because I never really got to grab a hold of like a um, a single place of, of living both myself or like the people before me so like I grab from everything like in America I really caught into like blues music for example and that's mm -hmm. like part of me now 
Um, and it's, um, it's interesting. It's interesting. Um, I think as an artist, I'm sure you can relate as, as a writer, um, and Cobra, I'm sure you can relate as well. It's just like, you, you, you think you, you kind of spend a little bit of time as you, as you continue to grow grappling with your identity. And especially, um, as in, in early development for me, it was like, am I a Jewish artist? Am I a Venezuelan artist? Right. It's like, um, am I an American? Am I, am I not, am I an occultist? Right. Which, which came much more to the fore later on because, uh, the world of, of surrealism and, and, in, and, and the occult by, by, um, by its own stretch, because they are related, um, really is about taking everything and collaging it together. And so mm -hmm. for me, that functions really well, both as a person, as an artist, and as a, as a magician and spiritual person. They all kind of blend. It's, it's, really, it's really about collage for me in, in a strange way. Interesting. So I'm a fourth or fifth generation American. Like I've been here forever, right? So much so that like whatever roots I have mostly in uh, Eastern Europe are all but gone from my family, right? I was never raised in any specific way. I have a dear friend who um, she's Russian um, and her uh, mother immigrated from Russia and her um, sister um, grew up with all these Russian cultures and her sister's husband was born in the USSR. So like a lot of direct cultural affectation on her life and through the prism of, of her, I've been able to see that like, there's not a ton. It, it doesn't appear that there's a ton of culture or like cultural touchstones within my version of America. Right. You have this kind of like, I know Andre's just mentioned the, like the blues, right. You have this, like, I think, I think it's a lot stronger in the South than it is in the North at this point in the country, but we're like a cultural as it relates to a certain kind of, I don't know, we obviously have economic culture and we have entertainment culture, but we don't have this like underlying connective tissue of traditions and events and touchstones, at least from what I've seen. And I agree. It's like very hard to situate yourself within that. And even, and especially as I came into crypto art and you see so many people struggling, I think with how much of their own identity to imbue into their art or how much of their own culture is then coming into contact with this weird like always online twitter culture the mono micro culture uh it's it is hard to uh, i think situate oneself within that um you know i go back to like pretty much like how clear-cut uh perhaps 1950s american identity was right and you know, that, that there were just like pretty much rules for how to be, how to exist, what people were doing. Uh, and for the most part, like they weren't very pretty. Now, if I try and like, I can think of that time and I can think of like the 60s and I can think of the 70s and there seems to be this way that it was. But once you start thinking about like times that we lived, like the 2000s or 2010s, does it have that same like distinct identity and and for me the answer is is no um and then i think about the things that like i've been running from as an american like the overconsumption and just like the sit in front of the tv and zone out um and you know whatever you do like some 40 year career job to get like a gold watch and then they like bury you so much of that culture we exported and it feels kind of like some of those chickens are, are coming home to roost and it's almost like the people is are are different now or some people have decided to be different than like 
the, the machina, the machine of American capitalism that has been created. And those two identities are no longer aligned. Yeah. Colburn, yeah. Do, do you think that American artists have a hegemony in some respect over crypto art? I don't think so. I don't, I can't, if, if I'm like real talk, like sitting here thinking about it now, do I, can I think of like a, like who would be, I can barely even think of an American artist. I don't even feel like I would consider Andres American artist. There's a lot of artists who I don't even think of as American artists, which is so interesting. I guess like for me, the American artist is people, right? Nah, man, die. Die with the most. Well, d- d- yeah. On, we, yeah, can't, yeah, yeah. we can't be doing <laughs> die dirty like this. That is, I think it comes down to, um, I think when it comes down to anything and, uh, you know, I think that, I think that we have the, um, the very human condition of living through our times and not being able to see them from the outside. But if you look back on say, you know, it's like Adina loves Clueless. Clueless has a look and an aesthetic that like people are actually bopping to now because it's what they grew up with. But um, as far as like, as far as art goes, I've, I've maintained and, and finally experimented. I've, I've maintained the idea of and finally physically experimented with the idea that, um, you know, as an artist is a, is a, is a reactive uh, uh, to being, right? I was going to say creature, but that's kind of fucked up. Uh, but, like, we, we're constantly reacting to, to our own, right, karmas and patterns or whatever. I said the same thing twice just now. Um, and uh, we're constantly reacting to ourselves and we're reacting to the culture that we belong to. And in crypto art, we're seeing artists, you know, like you can react to the crypto art culture, right? But I think an American artist, when I think of an American artist, I want to see someone reacting to American culture. And I actually think almost immediately of, um, when I think of an, uh, an American artist reacting to American culture, even though he's, he's a commercial director, is a Tim Burton with an Edward Scissorhands, for example, mm-hmm. where that's like, a, oh, we are... We are fully critiquing the like, you know, it's you got the kind of um, not McMansion, but you know, so you got your kind of like your model house with your model car with your model wife. And this is not my beautiful wife. This is not my beautiful house. How did I get here? Like that. I got to throw that back a little bit because I think that what <laughs> something like Edward Scissorhands is is a it's the median point, but that becomes the culture that we're then I think collectively referring to. I think a lot of what America is and a lot of what American art is is a meta culture on top of itself, and I don't say that just because a lot of the art is meta referential, especially in like the television and movie and and literature world. I mean, the very fact that so much of our quote unquote like high minded art is all of this meta stuff. It's, um, you know, writing about writing, it's filmmaking about filmmaking. Like, yeah, to an extent, yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's onanistic to an extent, but I think it's also, we don't, it's hard to see the culture of America unless you're really, really perceptive. It's a lot easier to see the Tim Burton version of America and then formulate a reaction based on that. Mm-hmm. I think that there's a real reason why, say, uh, the, like when I, I'm thinking about seeing a movie. I read a review for that movie and then I base or I read reviews, critical reviews. Conversely, after I go see a movie, I also read critical reviews because I want to have my initial thoughts confirmed or denied. And then what I end up with is a cognitive process that is reactive to the reaction more than it's reactive to the stimulus itself, or at least in large part reactive to the reaction. And I think with an absence in America of these deeper seated kind of untouchable touchstones, what we have are cultures that 
are responding to responses. Um, you know, it's, it's a culture that's responding to clueless where clueless itself is a commentary on the culture. And maybe that's unavoidable, but it seems like all we have, and I see it in die with the most likes too. It's like, he's responding to a funhouse mirror version of America to begin with. Like, a, it's almost like, a, I don't know, man. I think that's real for him. I think Indiana. like what he sees is real in Indiana. Yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> you know, this is not like your, this is not your like West coast, East coast, liberal elite. Like this is, we, I, I, you know, I've, I've been to the Iowa state fair. Like I've seen some things, you know, it's. You've seen them really fucking that grass, man. It's no joke. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I, I, yeah. But even deep fried butter is beautiful. Yes. And there's not, and yes. there's none of that beauty in Die with the Most Likes' work. There is a, a a beauty about it, but it is not beautiful artwork. It's meant to like deny beauty. I think that that's kind of its purpose is to be so grotesque and so horrifying. Wow, you guys are both looking up at your individual ceilings in deep thought. Uh, I've, I'm gonna bring this around. I love Die with the Most Likes' artwork, but I think that it is still it's a segmented. It's very um, specific in what parts of a life it's capturing, right? Like, I don't think that that's necessarily a fault or even like a criticism of the artwork. It's just the reality of, I think, having a negative take or a positive take on anything is it's only going to be a segment of the actual whole. And I think that that's more or less what these reactions, like what a critical analysis of a film or a book is, is a, a slice of a perspective of the whole. You can't get the whole view of the, the entire thing. Am I making any sense at all, Andres? No, 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 no. I, I totally, I, I, I had a feeling we were going to talk about this today and I'm actually really excited. I, uh, I'm supercharged today. I'm, I was so excited for this um, because I knew we were going to have a great conversation. Um, I've come to my little slice of experience is that um, it comes down to, it comes down to the artist as, a magician and the artist as a mystic. Um, what's the difference? The difference is that a mystic is seeking communion with the world around them and a sense of unity and a sense of unity with something much grander with whatever name you want to put to it. It's like source, God, the universe, the, the world, the physical world, the spiritual, all that stuff. The magician is trying to make things happen and, when, when, and, and change things within their context of that world in their present material-ish reality or not. But um, what I mean by this in an artistic sense is that we have some people like, like myself, I'd argue like Dai, where you are um, reflecting the mirror cracked or you are creating your own reality as a response to your current reality, right? And then you have someone like, um, I, I would, this is going to be a hot ass take, but um, the people that are more mystical that find incredible beauty in the world around them and i would um i would i would argue uh like an andy warhol for example where it's like we're, we're even even the ugly parts of the world around them the pop culture all that stuff is like it becomes a, a can of soup becomes everything you know what i mean and it's like the, i admire that because for me i uh an artist that can that can manage that because for me i've always been an escape artist since i was young because of moving a lot i've had to grab hold of both this, any world that I could in, in fantasy, right? Um, so for me, it, it, uh, it appeals to me to create fantasy and to be that magician uh, in, in as many aspects as I possibly can be. But 
the mystic is always the one that's always the most contented because they can look at the um, the uh, the objects, the the nature or the detritus around them, and not uh, embellish that fact. They mm. can they can look at it and see the beauty in it, right? It's a painter uh, painting a uh, a nature scene or a uh, discarded Pringles bag, right? It's it's really about. Um, I think that I think that for me, that's that's where I uh, divide a lot of the art that I like when I find it really effective. Is it does either that it either takes me somewhere completely, incredibly personal and and intimate and fantastical, or it uh, roots me back down to my, to reality and gives me that sense of of unity when I see it portrayed. So I, I don't know. <laughs> that's just like just like the floating trash bag in American Beauty. It just so yeah exactly that mm. one yeah or not another team movie which. Uh, Equally <laughs> I'm trying to find an artwork in the Genesis collection. Cobra, maybe you can refresh my memory. It's the um, it's the close-up image of the poppy that is um, made like ghostly. Yeah, uh, Luna, has... Luna Kudas, California poppy. Thank you. Uh, Luna Kudas is California poppy. So you're, Andres, you were talking about finding beauty in the natural world, and I love this piece specifically. It's this like very close-up colorless translucent view of a, of a poppy flower and wh who's the artist name again Colbert? i'm so sorry luna akuta luna akuta so luna has a series of flowers that again are, are basically produced exactly like this they're the color is sapped out they're made like translucent and ghostly and zoomed up really close and it is finding an entirely new world of associations and of um mimetics within like a recognizable object and you're like in the same time, both aware of the object being exactly what you think it is, but it's also like indelibly changed. You're like both finding the object in itself and being like repulsed away from your, all the associations you have of the object. The poppy is red, the poppy as, you know, having a stem that's recognizable from the petals and the petals having certain um, like kinds of fragility, you know, there are like little air bubbles in it. And it's a fantastic piece. You but, would think, you would think one that she, uh, at first glance, you would think this has to be 3D. You could think, how yeah. could this actually be real? But no, she, <laughs> she strips it of all its chlorophyll. She strips it and she inserts them into uh, aquariums that are filled with water and places them. Mm. And, and it gives them like this very ghostly, yeah. natural motion. With, uh, it's incredible. Work. Yeah. Shout out Luna Akuda. It's um, amazing. You see, but this is like... Me and Adina at a Barnes and Noble, and we pick up a book on close-ups of bugs, and it's the um, it is the mystical expression. It's it's the universe in a grain of sand, right? It's like for me, uh, again, very beautiful because for me as an artist, it's um, something in me stops me from doing that kind of work, and I always look at that work and I'm like, that is really absolutely beautiful, but but I my soul is drawn somewhere else for some reason. So I I, I appreciate the hell out of it, honestly. It's it's um. And, and yeah, it's um, for me, it's really hard to do also because I just can't really sit still that way um, in terms of the creative, uh, what, what comes out. Right? I think, although, uh, Andres, I want to respond to this. There's the, um, you, you mentioned this idea of like there being, of course, a difference between magic and mysticism. And I think that there is not always that divide, um, which I think is important because I think you, you put a pretty clear pillar between them right it's like i did a very masculine them. thing where i said there's only two uh, <laughs> but it's like <laughs> but it's it's true it's very it's very blurry um when i started really taking um my esoteric study seriously it's um it was given to me through a a, a course book 
and it essentially was like, what are the differences between these two experiences of uh, embracing reality and um, and altering reality, right? And that and that sort of thing. And um, it is it is a hundred percent a a blurred line. And um, what was said to me very early on by a very great teacher was um, the magician doesn't think they're a mystic until they're inevitably a mystic because you're engaging with these different um, processes of the world anyway and it becomes intimately linked to you which probably doesn't make too much sense in this but what I'm trying to say is that uh, the line's super blurry almost all the time right it's like you're finding a whole universe in in this in this image of this flower right it's like well your brain's reacting it's like what what are, what are your associations right it's like you're you're intaking all this information and something else is coming out right this poetry is coming out instead and that's mm -hmm. a, yeah <laughs> I guess all I meant is I think like mystics are inherently magical by this definition because to be at one with the world is to have an effect on the world um, because you unless you're totally like in a hermitude. Um, yep, yep, it's true. Is her hermitude used in the correct context there? No, sure. no, no. It's it's true. Um, it's it's the uh, the idea that everything uh, is constantly rippling, right? Chaos theory, right? Um, which I know fuck all about, but. Um, I think about uh, Jodorowsky. My, one of my favorite movies of all time, which loops in the studio a lot, is uh, Confession. Um, but it's uh, Jodorowsky's Jodorowsky's Dune, and essentially, it's uh, even the things that you, whatever you try, even if it doesn't succeed, it has a ripple effect. And I, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about that as well. It's just like there's, there's no choice. You're constantly altering rea the reality, and you're being altered by it. But that's a heady ass conversation, man. <laughs> yeah, well, I it's 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 pretty far from where we uh, where but, we started. But that was that was also a very important realization for me when I began to feel that just the thoughts that I was having were as powerful as the actions that I was also having. Right, and I could feel that uh, the things that I was believing, the stories that I was telling and saying to myself about myself, just even in my own head were somehow rippling out. And I don't know if that is a, a sense of mysticism, but it does kind of go back to just like being in these systems early and like seeing and connecting and like whatever the Ethereum thing was, it didn't really matter. That was a means to almost like express interest, but just like seeing and believing and having that ripple effect and knowing that your artwork is living in this way and touching so many unseen eyes and having like I was showing your artwork last night to you know some people that were here you know and you don't know that and so we never really know like the the total consequences of our actions and just the silly things we share and and how they can be perceived and and shifting like a, a global collective consciousness. I was I was speaking to the collector uh, Ohms not too long ago, and he mentioned about you, Coborn, that you guys talk and you you talk about you know being dismayed sometimes at the state of crypto art, and then having this realization that like okay, well if we step away, you know who and with what ethos is going to take our place, right? You mentioned like being early and bringing in this kind of spiritual energy. And I think that like, that's what we all try and do in our own ways. I think it's what you try and do with your collecting. And I think it's what you tried to do with the, what you're trying to do with the museum. I think it's what I try and do with, with all my writing is just impart vibes into the ecosystem because part of, you know, the ability of blockchain to energy capture all this disparate energy is, you know, it's going to capture anything that's put anywhere near it. Right. It's so 
Andres, you said the word supercharged. You were talking about yourself, not the blockchain, but it is like the supercharged bug zapper and everything within its orbit will find its way back to some, you know, being recorded somewhere on it. Uh, even if it's not directly, like say I write an essay about someone's work, it's not necessarily that essay going to be recorded, but the effects downstream will be indelibly like marked on a block somewhere like within this ecosystem it will physically be caught like all the the ripples somewhere down the road will stick to you know, the glue paper that or the fly paper fly glue what do you call that stuff anyways the glue trap that is the blockchain yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you guys yeah. were no help on that one and, and no, I I <laughs> but i feel you um it's um it really it's one of those it's this it's this weird mystery where you know we are going to sometimes we'll be able to see ripple effects of a lot of things. And sometimes we're just not going to be able to based on the short lifespan we have. But I, I do think that like the intention, the intention matters in any way that you slice it psychologically, spiritually, like everything. And the fact of the matter is, is that you guys have put a lot of intention into the space and sure you could fucking hang your hat up and put, get some Acapulco shirts and just run a savage burn on a hotel, like fear and loathing style, but it, and never come back. But like you, you'll, the, the mark is there and you guys are constantly leaving more and more and more and more and more, whether it's through, through writing, through the way they talk to people about the space, the, the, the artists presented, like it, this, this has massive, uh, massive, massive ripples. And it's, um, it's a crazy thing. And I think intention, intention does matter. And um, we should have this guy back on, huh? <laughs> yeah, this is great. <laughs> yeah. Check, yeah. Check is in the mail. Your anti-guru. Um, I, uh, I, I come from based on, based on my background and based also cause I have a really, I have Adina and I essentially our feedback loop for ourselves with this, uh, Adina for those listening is my wonderful fiance, um, who's a, a writer, animator, painter, and a general genius without whom I would be in a ditch. So she'll hear this later. Um, I, uh, we, we feedback loop this, this, this thing because we're hundred percent of the belief that, um, whatever, whatever you believe is true and whatever you intake really matters. And with um, your mind, you make the world, right? That's what the Buddha said. Oh yes. And stepping away is also equally, equally important to that. Right. It's like, you need to allow the thing to, to grow and rebound. So you're not so concerned over it, over watering the plant to continue to mix that stupid ass metaphor. Um, but like it, um, it really is. It really is your intention. If your intention for the space is this is a fucking revolution, and you're coming in and with all of your being, you're going this is a fucking revolution, and it's so much fun for me to scream off the goddamn rooftops that this is a fucking revolution, a revolution you shall have, and it's it's happening, right? Despite dips, despite markets, despite everything, it's like the belief is there, the collection is there. You got like it's just, it's just, the people are there, the culture is there, like. It's just, yeah, it's, it's already going. Like, it's already going. The train so, has left the station, for sure. Yeah, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing we can do at this point. All the influences are there, um, and the wisdom is there, too. But that's me going on a massive tangent. Take us. <laughs> Where's <laughs> what, what wisdom is there? I'm curious. When you say uh, that, what are you thinking I, of? I think, I think that what we're seeing right now is that... Um, I know, I know, Max. I uh, I know that um, at least for Colborn, Colborn, Colborn came in and is is full on OG, you know, like status, like silver key to the crypto city type beat. In terms of like, there was a way that I know you want that you've been seeing space and that you came into the space 
kind of how a lot of artists are coming into the space now where that you there was a collective of people it was not that big and there was a lot of idealism in the space um just before the entire art market seemed to recognize that there's money to be made here and coins to be gambled and lost and won again and bets to be followed and blah 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 jargon 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 until finally you know you have this crash and what i'm seeing here is the uh the crypto the crypto art world that developed through that idealism and birthed this massive market um is going to has already gone through essentially terrible twos and is now finding real wisdom and self-awareness um everything from a collector from PFPs no longer collecting PFPs and really only strictly going to art um some people finding like additions and going from there uh collectors that have been collecting for a long time with massive collections really just like zeroing in on like well, who do I like and who do I want to support that's been uh, a fucking friend to me through all this craziness um there's a it's really interesting because it's it's um if you look at it from the outside this the entire organism that we're a part of is is really evolving in a, in a really insane way um and, and you're seeing it in terms of who knows if they'll rebound i'm sure they will but like the apes um the apes going going and having a downturn the um the generative art having a a a crazy renaissance right it's like there's just there's a maturation happening that is uh, that that can be felt and seen which is something that i don't think you could do before with a culture um in terms of in terms of its visibility being so grossly there yeah it's true i mean even just it's like it's the ease with which you can see it too it's the ease like so much of the research i do on these pieces i write is just going back and seeing when things were minted who was bidding on them right there's so much that you can tell within that culture you know we have this um application that uses filecoin and it saves it, it backs up so many states of the museum you know we have the community collection which is this decentralized art collection and it's hard now when we're right in it but you know 5 10 years down the road you're going to be able to use this like filecoin application more or less to be able to see at any given point what people were collecting what people deemed important enough from their collections to put into the museum i mean i've already seen it you know at the very beginning so much of that community collection was pfps because those were the kinds of nfts that people had on hand in their wallets and you can just you can just go through and even if you just have fleeting familiarity with it you see the general tenor of what people are getting in touch with what they're actually accumulating and then what they want to express like that's just changing over time and you can see really really specifically um like how people's collections are changing over time how collectors are their sensibilities are evolving who did i speak to i think it was tennessee jed who had told me that and himself yeah he he can look back through his own like collection see when he was really sad or melancholy because there'll be a bubble of pieces that he had collected from around that time and then when he comes out of that period his sensibilities change i, I coburn maybe you have the same experience in your uh, collection just just like a song that brings you right back the pieces bring you right back to exactly who you were at that time you know mm-hmm. and what you were doing and why you were doing it and what you were trying to express and again it's it's once it even changes hands and goes and when people talk about provenance and we talk about this unseen energy that's like put into these pieces and almost like knowing secrets of people who might have been creating under aliases in different places to do more expen- experimental things like there's so many little untold stories that are captured there but are untold right and never in a million years will we all be able to come together to like 
tell all of those cool little facets, interesting things that, that we would just love, but they're there. Like energetically, they're attached and they're in those transactions. And it speaks and adds, I think, to the value of those pieces. Yeah, it's like Una, you know, what with the wash trade, right? And it's like just on into the blockchain with her um, uh, milking the artist piece. Like, again, that energy that story recorded on the blockchain and kind of purposefully forgotten, or you were telling me about what the Druid, right. Who would put a dollar bid on all the artworks on super rare, like indelibly lending a bit of themselves to all these artworks, to all let's, of these different let's, transactions. Uh, let's like, tell Andres the story of the Druid because this guy is legendary and he just dropped it sounds off. crazy. Are you fucking yeah. kidding me? No. So the Druid would like less than a dollar. His thing was like, on any old forgotten, untouched piece, anything really that he liked, he would bid like 0.0001 Ethereum, right? And people sold him a mountain of work, right? Wow. And eventually when Super Rare started picking back up, he was like reselling and flipping. And I bought like a lot of like Robness and Max Osiris off of him. And he wrote me one day, he's like, look, I just bought like a bunch of acres, you know, in Canada and I'm out like, <laughs> I, you know, like, and people would be like, you know, like nobody else had like the gall to be able to do this to artists. But like the Druid had this identity and he would just be like the Druid method and he wouldn't care. He wouldn't care. It was, yeah. But uh, H. Blavatsky, uh the uh, guru of theosophy, no offense to theosophists. Um, I personally think she was full of shit, but uh, that's neither here nor there. She had, she was a very charismatic lady. And one of the more popular stories about her that I know of is that she would go on trains and just fucking toss seeds out in front of followers and shit. They'd be like, why do you do that? It's like, well, there's a chance that that shit takes root. And I think that's a very magical, mystical attitude in terms of just mm. like, yeah, I'm going to like fucking see where this pans out and why not? It's going to be the most fun. And I find that funny in terms of looking at a collection as a bit of a portrait of the person's soul up until that point, right? A very visible mm. film strip-ish, I guess. Um, with Jed, it's like, I, I met Jed. Jed's fucking great. He's fucking hysterical. Yes, and yes. I, I met him and uh, we bonded on the dick butts. Do you know what I mean? Which, yeah. fuck, I, I, there's not a day that goes by I don't regret not buying a dick butt. Not because of the... Uh, not because of the, the money amount, but because of like what that meant to me at the time in terms of the crypto art space, in terms of like at the time of their inception, I was like, you know, there's there's all these weird beanie baby type different animal themed shit. And it's just like it's kind of like cute, but not funny. Like, why would it be popular? But I understood almost immediately that like shit makes me laugh. Like this is this the provenance is the amount of fun I'm having with this potential project. And again, I regret not buying. I was an admirer from afar. Before. <laughs> and he has a ton of them and he's just fucking that beautiful, beautiful man. God damn it. So Andres, you, you may not know this, but I speak a lot about my um I'm a recovering Solana PFP addict. Um well, <laughs> recovering and relapsing. Um, How does that mean? That sounds so much regret. <laughs> it's great. It's one of my favorite things that I do. Regret. It's at least a, a the topic of conversation but in a lot of these solana pfp ecosystems there are of course these like big influencer names and but again we we're just talking about like how the druid would affix themselves to these um pieces of art kind of forevermore just by bidding on them but people buy nfts for more money if they had been in a certain collection beforehand um and i think that that's a really interesting like it just touches like just because the 
NFT has touched somebody, it has a different kind of value, not even a financial value necessarily, but it's very similar to like, uh, what was it? Aaron judge hit a, his six, the 62 home run ball last year. And the guy who caught it was able to like, he sold it at once for like $3 million. And again, it's like the theoretical cultural value of the thing that is giving it its, all of its value, but more than that, the relationship that people then have to that object, just like essentially like this timestamp of Aaron judge's bat hitting that ball and the distance it traveled is the, the signature on that object in the same way that the Druids 0.001 bid is also his signature on the object. So for whatever reason, if one of the effects of these podcasts is that the Druids cultural value skyrockets, their legend grows well, suddenly all those artworks are the bid of his just because that had happened in the past because it bears that like tiny signature. Like it's imbued with the that energy. I don't know if that, maybe that's a super obvious no, no, point. No, but... not, not at all. I mean, I was talking earlier. It's like, you know, you have a small, like the small microcosm of a general art world, right? But like these figures become incredibly legendary and we're seeing it in hyper time. We're seeing it in fucking fast forward. We're not seeing... Peggy Guggenheim saves all the surrealists from fucking Europe, brings them to New York, puts on a show, and it's written in the history books. We're seeing, like, it's a collector with a name, with a personality, with everything visible that you can kind of bring in. And the collector's journey and the artist's journey is the thing that ends up being written about. Like, that's the, that's the history. We just have the incredible luck that we can see it, again, like I said, in real, in real time. What, what that'll look like five years from now, ten years from now, a hundred years from now is uh like the ripples 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 we can only imagine like it's a crazy thing you know i mean it's it's yeah it's it's interesting to me just going off of that and i think we see it more in the reverse is like kind of more some of the big name big ego collectors taking in certain artists and like trying to bid them up and then it kind of ultimately falling flat right this was never really about who got the highest i feel like but who kind of extended the widest mm-hmm. and i think you know any in this paradigm any artist who like makes themselves beholden to somebody who is like saying they are going to create something for them is almost missing the point because those those systems in that way to travel just it, it's not the reality of what we're dealing with mm-hmm. Let's mm. talk about the imbalance between uh, the the um, potentially toxic artist-collector relationship a little bit here. Sure. Right. right? It's like the um, the there you know within within the space there are uh, abusers may or may not be a good enough or or too too intense enough word, but like yeah, there definitely is. Um, there are power dynamics, but and that are that are definitely at play, and artists who want to have the, the big the biggest, most wonderful, explosive and easiest break you can so you can have financial freedom. And if somebody promises you uh, you know, the stars, maybe you'll hit the moon, right? But I've always um I've always been of the belief that uh the relationships between everybody are really important. For me, for me, this is why I really love the idea of my collectors are my friends. Right, like my collectors are my friends. I hang out with them. I can show with them. We can resonate. We can vibe. I make sure of it. Um, with very few exceptions, I think I don't personally go out of my way to meet my uh, my collectors um, um, whenever whenever possible. Right, one of ones are a bit easier. Editions are a little bit harder because higher volume and lots of you know 
but like i i really want to know wh- whoever's taking this home like can i am i going to be able to come visit are we going to be able to hang out like are we going to be able to break bread and, and drink right you know like is and, and smoke and hang out like is that is that going to be a warm relationship and i think that that has done me a great service in terms of in terms of who i am and also the very jewish certainty of one eyebrow up at all times you know like that's a very like that's a very talmudic that is very important that uh that uh, that you know i already had and and adina already had and well, i don't know if you you can see but one of my eyebrows is permanently just like slightly higher than the others you, like you see it's there it's, it's like there. a little bit higher it's a genetic precondition mm-hmm. that comes that comes it's our, it's our it's our gift but like i i do think that um I, I won't say I have an incredible nose for, for, for bullshit or for someone that's trying to, you know, to trying to fuck with me, but like it does behoove one to develop that, whether it's by instinct or by getting yourself uh, hit once and then never again, right? Which is neither here nor there. Yeah, you, you know, there's a lot of reasons I envy um, artists, like visual artists. There's a lot of things that I think um, as a writer you're denied that is shared by pretty much every other art form. Most specifically like the isolation of writing. It is, it can never be a collaborative act. Not really Um, more on that later or another time probably. But one of the things that I think I, as a writer, you do have that is difficult for artists is that visual artists is the only visual artistry is the only art form I can think of where scarcity is not just um, imposed. It's like an absolute necessity or at least has been a necessity to this point right? That you can only have one collector for a piece or 10 collectors or a hundred collectors, but have a finite amount of collectors for a piece. I mean, nowhere else is that in force and every kind of narrative art form and every kind of theatrical art form, uh, you know, even the culinary arts, your goal is to bring your work to as many people as possible. And it is only judged on the wide basis of the consumption. Whereas with visual artistry, of course, it's inherently different because it's not about how many people you can bring your art to. It's how much value can one person or, you know, the finite amount of people that are collecting your work have. And it does obviously lend to, to predatory relationships. I'm, I, you know, I feel like we always, for whatever reason, come back to this like zero one concept Colburn that you're working on. But I do think that there's so much more to talk about, about this idea of like abandoning the idea of scarcity that is so integral to crypto art. I mean, it was, before it was crypto art, it was rare digital art. But like, why does it need to be rare? There is no inherent necessity for it. On an economic level, you can see why it's beholden to a certain model and because that model has been proven successful. But there is no inherent reason why the goal of an artwork shouldn't be to reach as many people as possible. Not in the way in which you see it and say that's pretty, but in the way in which your ownership of it and your daily interaction with it is really providing you a kind of nourishment. Um, and we haven't seen that at all, really. Um, and I don't know if it's possible with like even the technology we have yet, um, outside, I mean, I guess you, it's different than an open edition. That's not necessarily what I'm thinking of. Um, welcome to why museums are a thing and nonprofits and art for art's sake, right? This is why I see zero one is very much, it's very much, of course, it's coming from a nonprofit, but it's like, why were museums created? It was to democratize art much like democratized art making has happened with a little bit of AI, right? But like the, um, the model that we currently have is still capitalist, right? Like it's not, it's not, I don't, I don't believe it's going to go away without some prolonged fucking 
gentle nudging. God, that sounds weird. Um, Jesus Christ. Uh, I don't want any part of that uh, way it sounded coming out of my mouth. But um, I, I do think like, yeah, it's like we're, we, you know, you, you do want to, you do want to have this shared experience um, with art. And it's a constant question, right? It's like we're in crypto art in particular, we're interacting with a, with a marketplace almost all the time, right? Even tweeting is, is interact, tweeting some bullshit, some shit posts is interacting with the market. And, um, I don't know how much that can be, uh, that is just part of the time. Like, it's like, you can't really run away from that, especially if your livelihood depends on it. But where the non-for-profit comes in is just, just great because it's like, let's, let's be able to look at the art for art's sake. And, and what I find, hopefully this is on, what you're talking about but I, I constantly have to remind artists not to look at galleries and auction houses as their means to expand their their repertoire in the traditional uh art world right because we we had the downturn with crypto art and we had a lot of artists going like well what do i do like how do i get into a gallery and i go no 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 like like slow slow down we have these edifices in society since the time of napoleon which is people donate to this superstructure that houses are that you can go see anytime. The reason we can go to the Met and like go and hang out in there at any time and see such a crazy thing, crazy collections, because that's multiple collections folded into one. Um, and they, they serve a purpose for artists as well, because they're also direct. They were the previously most direct way that you could get in contact with collectors outside of uh, and foundations outside of your dealer and your or your curator, or your gallerist, right, who would take their 30% cut to like keep the lights on or whatever. And then, and then move on. Right. It's, it's, um, I hope this is salient in any way to what you said, because I'm just like, I'm still, I'm just like, yeah, there's, there's a lot no, of it, around. It is, it is. I, I'm, you know, we have to wrap up soon, but, but what this is making me think of is when I was um, like 16 or 17, I went to, to Paris for the first time and I was at the Louvre. And of course you go into that room with the Mona Lisa and right across from the Mona Lisa, which is a pretty diminutive painting behind glass that everybody's looking at. Everybody it's, always says it's small. They're like, it's, it's, small, it's small. It's tiny. It's like, it, it can't be more than like th three or four feet high. And right <laughs> across from it is that. the, right across from it, across the, like the half of the room is the Wedding Feast of Cana by Paolo Veronese, which is the largest piece in the Louvre. It is a giant, like 20 by 35 foot painting. And I remember, um, uh, it's, the, it's still the thing that I think is, it, it's integral to the work of the Mona Lisa for me. I'm like, this work is so diminutive. It's so unimpressive. And it's across from like this apex of artistry, this incredible um, demonstration of vision and talent and scope. And something about what you were just saying has like kind of filled in the blank for me about why that is, why that juxtaposition is there. And, the importance of putting a work in a museum and letting, I don't know, like the cultural value kind of emerge from its exposure to as many collectors as possible. Because of course you think about why that juxtaposition would be happening. And on a purely technical basis, there's no comparison, but it's not about the technical basis or rather the technical basis is subservient to the cultural basis, which is kind of what we've been saying, which is you put this thing in a museum and you let the people choose what is most meaningful to them and there's not always a sense in what they choose and there's not always um it's not always about technical admiration sometimes that's secondary tertiary or even unimportant altogether but just providing the option for the masses to glom on to whatever they're going to glom on to and form that wave and form that 
I don't know, all encompassing creation though. Like think about that. Like, okay. Like the idea of you've curated this space for people to come in and look at the art. And what I find really beautiful that I've seen, I've seen it at the Met. I've seen it at the, at the Louvre. I've seen it in the Dali museum in Figueras and even the one in St. Petersburg right here. Um, where your curation says in this particular occasion, you see that tiny painting there that you've seen your whole fucking life. Look up. It's so small. It's so fucking, what is this? It's like, right. It's like, well, and it's right next to this giant one, which immediately on, on its face makes you go, what the fuck? And you're like, but then it's like, what is it really trying to tell you? It's like, these two things may look like one is larger and one is smaller, but in fact, they have the same goddamn ripple. And I would argue that the smaller stone, has the greater ripple there's a fucking there's something in that sentence there that uh you know whatever i'm not gonna stroke myself off right on camera just yet but like uh <laughs> <laughs> like we have um like there's there's something beautiful about that and I, i've seen that multiple times where it's done where um i think i think it's interesting looking at an artist's work particularly painters right where it's very visible and, and sculptors as well where you can see um large works and small works you know that potentially have the same amount of work put into them but it's our it's our at first glance going like the large work is that much more like titanic like bring the hammer down but in reality you know like when i went to the dali museum the the small works were the ones that really fucked with me the big ones floored me but they allowed me to go into the smaller ones with a sense of like intimateness and grace and it also allowed me to see the differences between what the artist might be able to do on a technical level and it's a dali where you're like you can work in tiny little detail, which he excelled at, or you work in massive brush strokes, which he was not so good at. But um, my point was that the curation can really do a lot in terms of telling you like um, how how you should look at the piece, right? Like that's that's the reason why it's seen everywhere, despite being a minuscule, uh, not even the best uh, Leonardo, obviously. But there's a reason why it's it's doing that, and and just leaves you pondering: is it the mystery? Is it the mystery of the sensuality and sexuality of that painting? The, uh, the colors are very specifically like it looks like a fucking stain of wine that grew a face. Like mm-hmm. it's uh, it's it's why is that more powerful than the Vernizian in the, in the back? Like what what is it about that that uh, that has captivated us or at least we've been forced to be captivated by <laughs> curation. But uh, that's neither here nor there. Well, it's not always about how it should be, how a work should be treated. But it, I think even better, it's how a work can be understood um within that new context but this is obviously a really pregnant topic and i feel like we could go for another hour so i'm gonna have to stop us here by force um andres this has been a wonderful conversation please come on back and we can continue this we'll pick up where we left off i'm so pleased yeah i'm pleased too um any last words guys before we uh go off andres anything you want to say to the people before we get out of here nothing um mocha's the bomb uh love you guys it's been great and um no 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 i'm gonna go back into the studio after this really what else is there to say <laughs> colborne last words uh what is it in the land of the lost you know don't don't follow the blinds right so figure out what you want to do what you're trying to achieve um and inevitably make it happen. But if you are feeling like you don't know where to go, probably the best thing you can do is kind of just sit there and observe. Um, Don't follow the person that's going to pull you in any direction 
And, you know, a lot of this is just an exercise in being lost and kind of accepting that and, and being observational as opposed to impressionable. Mm. Or aprender en los coñazos, which means to learn by getting hit, right? Learn to the experience and then observe and then uh, don't be stupid a second time. It's cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well said, gentlemen. Well, this has been a, a truly fantastic episode of the Mocha Live podcast. We hope you join us again next week at the same bat time, same bat channel. Uh, we are getting out of here. Andres Coburn, thank you very much. And see everybody next week. Bye. Peace. This podcast was produced by me, Max Cohen. It featured intro music by Dayfox, as well as theme music by Julian Brangold.